Our passage from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. Here's the reading of God's word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Amen. This is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Last week we spend some time talking about the devil, Satan, who he is and what he's about, all of the different names and how that in every way expresses his character. And the reason we are spending a few weeks talking about the enemy, Satan, is because we need to know what his strategies are, um, what his plans are, what his goals are. And the more we understand him, the more we will rightly be able to combat him, to combat all of his, as Paul says, his schemes, his wiles. And so I hope you don't get overwrought with this foreboding sense that, wow, Satan just seems so powerful. Always, always remember verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Remember that. Embed that deep into your soul. Because as much as we talk about Satan, infinitely greater is our God. We never need to be afraid. So I want you to keep that in mind. Keep that at the forefront and at the deepest core of your being, because that will help you to have perspective as we talk about Satan. But we do need to talk about him. We need to understand him, who he is, what what strategies he has. And that's what we'll talk primarily about today is the strategy of deception. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, Satan enters the scene. And Moses describes Satan this way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Satan made a decision in the garden. His decision was he would take on the form of a snake. I don't think that's an arbitrary decision. Now, the thing is, God created the snake. So we must not think that inherently a snake is evil. I know some of you might think that to be true. But know that when Satan takes on the form of a snake, he embodies the snake. He does so because there is something about the snake that characterizes in some way who Satan is. A snake, a serpent, is quiet. It slithers. Its movement allows it to sneak up on its prey. It's actually important for a snake to be able to do that. That's how it survives. And there's nothing wrong with that. But Satan sort of does that, takes on that form, because that's exactly what he does in the garden towards Adam and Eve. He quietly slithers into Adam and Eve's purview and through their scheme and... When no one is suspecting him, he strikes. So what is then Satan's goal? What does he want most? He wants 
to destroy and hurt God. And he knows the way that he's going to do that is to hurt his people, his family. And he does this by deceiving them. For Satan, anything that causes God pain is accomplishing his primary objective. But we're going to see that all of Satan's scheming and seeming power over God's creation ultimately leads to the very destructive power over Satan. As much as he tries to destroy God's people, God's people come back to destroy him, ultimately through God's own son. But what power does Satan have? Jesus describes Satan as an armed, strong man. So one thing for sure is that Jesus does not just simply dismiss Satan. He very well could because he is that much more infinitely stronger than Satan. But he describes him as a strong man. And we'll look deeper then into this strategy. How does he use deception to control and even to harm and possibly to destroy God's people? How does he do this? Jesus describes this deception in John chapter 8, verse 44 this way. He says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. And then now he describes Satan here. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Paul also writes about Satan's deception this way in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The Bible is quite clear. The devil uses deception as his primary weapon against you and me, against God's people. Last week, we spoke about his lies, but I want to delve deeper into the methodology of his lies. And it's important that we consider this in light of today's passage, which is to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I like the way the King James Version describes the word scheme. It uses the word while, wiles, W-I-L-E-S. It has more of a nuance of plotting, subtlety, scheming, strategizing, because that's exactly how the devil works. He is a strategizer, a master strategist. And just like the snake in the garden who comes slyly, quietly, but then strikes to kill, so too Satan does so. So we're going to look at a few of his tactics when it comes to this deception. The first is subtlety. Subtlety is, it's really masterful. I mean, if you're going to understand Satan, you have to understand that he actually is very, very cunning, very witty. And why is subtlety such an important quiver, uh, arrow in Satan's quiver? Because Satan, first of all, we'll talk a lot about this next week. He does not have the power to possess a Christian. He can't do that. So because he doesn't have the power to possess a Christian, he will do everything he can to oppress a Christian. And again, I'll talk about the distinction between the two next week. Because he doesn't have this power, he decides instead to use a sort of a roundabout approach, a backdoor approach to attack a Christian. 
And he does that through confounding and deceiving and oppressing. And he knows he can't do it just through the open door in the front because there was an open door. And so he does it by an, a subtle attack. He tries to render a Christian to become harmless and weak, to become a point to the point where they no longer fight. They're sort of out of the battle. They're still a soldier, but they're just out of the battle. They're not attacking. They're not making any progress. And that can be just as powerful of a weapon as even possession can be. We see this in actual physical wars. You know, in wars, there are many, many soldiers who fight, but due to all sorts of psychological trauma, they actually pull out of the war. Rick Atkinson, who wrote a biography on um, World War II, really a, a tome, really, he describes a U.S. Army chief psychiatrist in World War II when he was He's treating a typical soldier who is also a patient, and he describes him this way. He appeared as a dejected, dirty, weary man. His facial expression was one of depression, sometimes of tearfulness. Frequently, his hands were trembling or jerky. By the end of the war, more than 500,000 men from the Army ground forces alone would be discharged for psychiatric reasons. This despite... Ruthless culling during induction physicals when 12% of the 15 million draftees examined were rejected as mentally unfit. For every six men wounded, another became a neuropsychiatric casualty. What he's saying is that the war itself, they became so traumatized by the psychological effects of the war that they became useless. And so they were discharged. What I'm saying is that very similarly, the enemy doesn't have to kill the Christian to knock him or her out. In fact, if the enemy kills Christians, usually what happens is that the church grows. The gospel goes forth because death for the sake of Christ always has the result that Satan doesn't want, which is the gospel goes out even more. More people come to see, wow, this person believed there must be something about what they believe that I want to utilize, that I want to know. A dead Christian is essentially the enemy's great um, negator of his work and effort. So he doesn't want to kill Christians, actually. What he really wants to do is to make them miserable, to make them joyless, to make them full of self-pity, to make them battle-weary, fatigued, lifeless, anxious, fearful, if he can do that, not only can he take them out of the battle, but then the rest of the world looks and they laugh and they see, see all these Christians. They're, they're not happy. They're miserable. What is the most powerful weapon we have as believers? The joy of the Lord is our strength. Do you have joy when, and we just prayed for our two gospel partners who really are in times where you shouldn't have joy. One going through injustice due to greed. The other going through times of real sorrow because of physical suffering and pain. And when you can have peace and joy in the midst of that, and trust me, I'm not saying it's easy. It is a fight. But Satan hates that. What he really wants is Christians to be vengeful, 
to be angry, to be afraid, to be quaking, cowering, to be filled with greed. He knows if he can get us to be like that, then he's won. This is why Satan is a subtle, crafty being. Paul understands this full well when he says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I am afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I think of Satan like a, that you, when you were young, you might have heard someone warning and saying, if someone pulls up in a car to a little child and offers you candy, you don't go into the car. Satan is that man who is in that car offering the candy, trying to allure and seduce that child away from whom? The protection of the parents. Paul is saying that Satan has done this to Adam and Eve, and he is not stopping to do this to you. He is, he is cunning. He is trying to allure you and draw you and seduce you away from whom? From the only one who can truly protect you, Christ. He wants you to stop praying. He wants you to stop trusting. He wants you to stop asking for help. He wants you to turn to anything else. It could be a doctor. It could be a lawyer. It could be a teacher. It could be a police officer. It could be social media. It could be anything. He wants you to stop turning to God and trust in anything else this is Satan's schemes, and you have to discern it. You have to know, how does he approach things? Paul also tells Timothy this, that when selecting an elder, he must be well thought of outsiders. Now, I want you to listen to what Paul describes as how to choose an elder. He says, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. And listen to this part. So that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And I do believe this is not just a potential warning for elders, but it's a warning for all of us to show us how the devil works. The devil creates snares. How do snares work? I have a friend who's been dealing with coyotes in his backyard. And these coyotes have been trying to kill his small little dog. And so at night, he puts out snares to catch these coyotes. Now, these coyotes are very, very smart. They can notice the slightest little branch out of, you know, just sort of out of its context in a snare. And so they will always avoid those snares. So you have to cover them up with the same plants. He studies the plants and the soils. He actually gets uh, rabbit <laughs> smells and puts them all around. And he actually even plays rabbit, uh, wounded rabbit recordings at night to try to allure these coyotes in. And he does everything because he wants it to be a safe environment for the coyote. Never forget, this is what Paul is saying the devil is trying to do to entrap Christians. He is trying to create a safe, comfortable environment. They look like the real thing. We have a few high school students who are going into college. So for those of you incoming college students or new college students, 
you're going to be approached by perhaps a group of students who says, join our fellowship. They are going to be really nice, really caring. They're going to offer to help move your stuff. They're going to bring boba to your room. At a time when you're most vulnerable and lonely for friendship, they're going to come with a lot of love. Even the Bible study that they invite you to, it just can sound right. But that's the subtlety of the enemy. He doesn't come with death smelling and horror movie images at you. He comes sometimes, as the Bible says, as an angel of light. How many times offers of friendships, opportunities at work for success, companionship by a so-called friend, sometimes leading to extramarital affairs, especially when a spouse might seem so unloving at home, can lead you down a deadly road. One click on a screen when no one is watching, that's all it takes, just one click. We think it won't hurt at all. One one. Or one extra drink, get into your car, drive, no designated driver. It only takes one. You see, the snare is very subtle. Do not think that Satan digs this gigantic big pit and then hopes you fall into it. That's not how it works. It always looks safe. Always. So how do we discern what this looks like? We have to understand that this comes in many different ways. So the first is subtlety. No, he's subtle. Second is false teaching. One of the devil's greatest tactics of subtlety is false teaching. And we shouldn't be surprised by it. Jesus warns us against it in Matthew 24, 24. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. What Jesus is saying is that Satan will try to deceive anyone and everyone. doesn't matter how well you know the Bible, how much theology you have, whether you have a PhD in theology or not, he is still going to try to, and he has succeeded in actually deceiving even those who know a lot about the Bible. How does he do this? Well, first he does it through cults. Never forget that the Bible, uh, uh, the Satan knows the Bible very well. Satan doesn't know partially the Bible. He knows the Bible. He can recite. He's memorized the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, he misquotes God's word to Eve. You can't misquote something like that if you don't know it well enough to misquote it. And the way he does it is so tricky that you know he knows exactly what God said. And so therefore, he intentionally, knowing exactly what God says, manipulates it. When Satan attacks Jesus through temptations in Matthew chapter 4 in the desert, he quotes scripture, but he misquotes scripture. He leaves one or two words out that changes almost the complete meaning of what the Bible was saying. That's how tricky and crafty he is. He knows the Bible that well. Meaning the devil uses enough of God's word to distort and deceive me and you as much as possible. Definitely the world. Listen to how Paul describes Satan's deceptions in 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So 
It is no surprise if his servants also describe themselves as uh, servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Satan and his demons and his servants disguise themselves, how? As apostles, as angels of light. In other words, all cult groups, in some way, the reason why they have such an allure is they sound very much like Christianity, like Orthodox Christianity. They, they present some sort of gospel, but it's no gospel, gospel at all. They use the same vocabulary, the same ideals. The leaders have the same moral values. Many times they use references to the Bible itself and all offer some sort of prosperity. But in the end, it's as far from the gospel as one end of the universe is to the other. They can never match the gospel of grace because at the core, these cult groups, like its ultimate leader, Satan himself, believe humanity is its ultimate savior, not Christ. And think about many of the different world religions and cult groups. They oftentimes have an apostle. So you have a Joseph Smith, and you also have an angel of light, a Moroni. In Islam, you have an apostle, Muhammad, and they even have the angel Gabriel as their angel of light. Uh, it actually happens quite often. In, even in secular philosophies such as communism, you have apostles such as Karl Marx and Lenin, and you also have an angel of light. In this case, it's the state. So at the end of the day, all cults and false teachings and world religions are formulated on the idea that following their God or their version of Jesus will be the answer to life's problems in this world. And especially the focus is always on prosperity here and now. You can get the best of what you want today. Peter warns against this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will, will be false teachers among you who will, and here's the important part, secretly bring in destructive heresies. So not blatant, secretly. Even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And this is how they do it, verse 2. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. The sensuality, what is sensuality? It is whatever you feel uh, that makes you feel good in the moment. That is what is primary. And so that's our, first of all, our sinful nature. And cult groups and other world religions, their point is to try to solve all the issues of your life now without looking to Christ at all but only looking to yourself or to some sort of other prophet, some sort of other apostle. And the goal is greed. And they'll use false words to describe it so that you need the Bible, yes, but also the Book of Mormon actually does a great job and really a better job of explaining the Bible. You need Confucius's writings. You need these seminars that you go through. And evangelicals are just as guilty of this. Go to this conference. You need this author. And again, there's a place and a value for people who are teaching the Bible. 
but it's always, let's go back to the Bible and see what, are they saying what is right? What matches up? Because it's never supposed to be, we're exalting this pastor. We get so bamboozled because we are far too often looking to a man or a woman as the sole means by which we know God. And that is absolutely not true. So let us not simply think that it's the Quran or the Buddhist scriptures that lead us this down this road. It goes across every religion and even parts of Christianity. What Paul and Peter are saying is that these are devilish thoughts. And these are his schemes. Whenever we are looking for shortcuts, some sort of 10-step plan to follow God, we're looking for comforts and prosperity right now, if that's what you're looking for, and you're looking for healing and love in this moment and all of our problems solved. We don't want fight. We don't want battle against sin. We don't want, we don't want to persevere in trial. We don't have to trust God or want to trust God with our grievings and our sorrows. If you find a faith or a promise or a book or a, if that is the attempt is to try to relieve us of every single sorrow and pain and not trust God, then it doesn't matter whether it's Christian or Muslim, or Mormon, or Jehovah's Witness, or anything else, you know there's some false teaching involved. Shortcuts are not the answer. The Bible just never gives us that. When Paul cried out, Lord, heal me. Three times, remove this thorn of flesh away from me, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12. Jesus' answer, my grace is sufficient for you. Sometimes the answer is, I'm not going to physically heal you. Instead, I want you to trust me. And there is something to be learned about that far greater than anything else that we could know. Lastly, uh, by means by which there is this type of um, false teaching is flawed exegesis. Exegesis is simply a word that describes drawing out what the author intends from the biblical text. And this means we have to be faithful to God's word to read it in its full context. What cult groups do is they will take one verse and they will create a whole system or a whole theology out of it. In order to know that you're not doing that, you have to look at the whole context, not just the verse, but the paragraph, not just the paragraph, but what's it, what does it say in the chapter? What does it say in the midst of what Peter is writing, what Paul's writing? What does it say in the New Testament? What does it say throughout all of scripture? And the more we understand the fullest context of that one verse, the more we will rightly apply that verse. But cult groups always focus on one or two verses and tries to rip that out of its context and create a whole system behind it. I had a professor, um, actually he preceded when I was there, but we've been told that there was a professor in our seminary who's a very talented biblical scholar. He was smart. He was really an excellent exegete. Eventually, it was found out that he was having an extramarital affair. And he was accosted. He was confronted. And when he was confronted by it, he tried to exegetically, biblically prove why his affair was godly. In other words, that's an extreme case to show how if we don't have a right view of the Bible as a whole, even an incredibly talented biblical scholar can still be so wayward. 
So it is so important that we understand the Bible. We grow in it. We learn it. We'll talk more about this when we talk about the full armor of God and putting that on and how that truly does guard us and protect us and keep us pursuant of him. The last way in which we show this type of deception, we see it is through self-centeredness, self-focus, self-importance. The devil wants you to believe that you are the most important person in the world. That's an evil deception. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. My dear friends, if you are a Christian, if you know Christ and you are being sanctified by his Holy Spirit, one thing you must never say is, I don't need to change. I don't need to grow. If someone you love and points out an area of growth, there should be in our hearts the willingness to hear the possibility that I actually could be wrong. There should be a willingness and a humility to say, how can I change? How can I grow? Because we know the old is gone, the new has come. We're being changed and formed in the new. And one thing for sure is the devil does not want us to believe this to be true. He wants us to always go back to how we thought of ourselves in the past. And do you know how we thought of ourselves in the past? We are the most important person in the world. Now you might say, I never said that. I never believed that. Have you ever been angry? Why do you get angry? Because someone has impeded in your life and proposed a different agenda than you. And because of your own emotive feelings towards that, because internally there is a sense of, there's no way you're right, I am right. And that comes out and it inflames. Anger reveals to us that we are, or we at the core of our being believes that we are the most important person in the world. That's how it works. And it's so easy to do. If we search ourselves, we often, how often what we say stems not because we care for other people, but because we want people to notice us how good we are, how smart we are, how wise we are. Social media is built on that premise. It really is. Everything about us on social media, even our comments, are built on the premise that I have something to offer you that is important and of value. And I want you to notice that. If you're the type of person, and I think all of us are victim to this and perpetrators of this in some way, is that we bring in a conversation and somehow steer it to actually compliment ourselves, to somehow exalt ourselves, to make ourselves look better. We've all been guilty of that at least once, many, maybe many times. Anger flows from the idea of you are the most important person. Envy flows from that same idea is that I want to gain, I desire something that you or someone else has that's going to propel me to be above what I am today so that I can be over you, be better than other people, so that I can obviously get what I deserve. Truly, as Paul says in Ephesians, we give the devil a foothold in our hearts when we are like this. So how do we respond? <laughs> the rest of this series is how do we respond? We put on the whole armor of God. 
I hope you're looking forward to that. We uh, we are going to continue talking about Satan next week. And you're probably thinking, oh, man, Satan again. But we'll talk a little bit more some other ways, not so subtle ways. So this is the subtle attack. Next time we'll talk about demon possession and oppression, different occult ideas, things that perhaps we've never even thought that actually invite Satan into our hearts, um, all sorts of divination that we actually believe in. Well, anyway, there's a lot of different ways that he attacks. And you're probably thinking, oh, wow, that's a lot. How do I stand? First, know that we're going to talk a lot about putting on the full armor of God. But again, I want you to go back to verse 10. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We must believe that he does the strengthening. Praise be to God. You know, at at the end of the day, what I hope you get out of me talking about Satan so much is you do feel like, how can I withstand that? And the answer is, you can't. You cannot. He truly is, as Jesus says, the armed strong man. You can't withstand it by your own strength and power. He will overwhelm you. He is the God of this world. He blinds the minds of unbelievers. So you should see even more so, there is no way that you and me came to love Jesus Christ when the God of this world has blinded my mind. It had to be an outward intervention. Someone who decided, you know what? I'm going to rescue you. Regardless whether you realize it or not, I'm going to come into your life. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing again and again. Be strong. Be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. What does he empower us with? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. We've got to go back to the foundation again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, and let's not underestimate that word, that is exactly what we were like spiritually. We were dead in our trespasses. But here is the wondrous work of Christ, made us alive together, resurrected with Christ. So by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him now, seated us with him now in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The raised up and seated us, you know, if you look at it, it's what he has already done. Yes, this is going to be an eternal promise, but this is current now. The The phrase heavenly places, it's it's a, one that Paul uses quite often in this book. And he does so to almost describe the spiritual realm, the principalities and powers in high places. But he wants us to remember that, don't worry, we are inheritors. We are above that. Paul wants us to remember this when he says, be strong in the Lord. Remember that you were once dead, but you're now resurrected. You are alive. Remember that you've been saved by grace. Remember that he's raised you up and seated you and brought you with him. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. You are more than conquerors. You've been raised up now. You are with him now. The end is assured for Satan. Victory has been won. We know the end of the story. This is what gives us the power and the impetus and the confidence to fight against the devil's schemes. No matter how dark 
it might be, we come with full confidence and faith. My friends, you have nothing to fear. Put on the whole armor of God. Let me close with this. You know, last night I was um, sleeping and in the middle of the night I had this dream. And in this dream, it was, <laughs> interestingly, I was fighting and casting out these demons. And this is happening last night. And I'm literally recounting scripture and just speaking words of mem- all the Bible verses I memorize. And as I do that, I wake up and I'm still literally saying that. And I couldn't go back to sleep. I just kept on saying scripture over and over again. In the middle of that dream, it just felt, I felt this huge foreboding fear, fear of Satan, actually. And as I started recounting these passages in the Bible, that fear started melting away. See, what Satan wants is he wants me and you to be exactly like that. And I don't think this is a coincidence that I'm having this type of dream as I'm about, as I've been preaching about Satan this whole week and next week and the week before is that he wants me and you to be so afraid of what he can do. Is Satan powerful? Yes. Is he strong? Yes. But our God is stronger. His word is great, that powerful. It is what Paul describes as the sword of the Spirit. That's why you have to memorize the Bible. That's why you have to let it sink into your soul. That's why you have to sing about it. That's why you have to share it with other people. That's why you have to think and pray and consider and proclaim and delight in. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. So as you do that, you can ward off so much fear, so many sorrows, so much self-pity, so many frustrations, but you have to fight. You have to put on that whole armor and you have to believe that Satan has been vanquished. Christ has won. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that exact truth is real. Christ has won. Satan has been destroyed. The works of the devil have been defeated. Now what we have is, yes, still a dangerous person who is out still like a lion, out to devour, trying to steal, kill, and destroy. We pray, O Lord, that as we consider such things, we remember that the cross of Christ is far greater. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is the sword of the Spirit by which we can fight this fight of faith. We are more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from your love. And as we take part in this communion, help us to see this is this is our banner. We raise it high. The banner of Christ. We bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.